0: Please take your Bible, you have one with you. Uh, if you don't have a, a Bible but you have a smartphone, grab your smartphone. You can go, even just go to your, your browser and type in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're, we're looking at the book of 1 Timothy, this letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a young pastor in the Greek city of Ephesus. Uh, this is 1 Timothy And then we're going to be looking at chapter 5, and we're looking at a longer section today than we have been. We're looking at verses 1 to 16. And part of the reason for looking at a larger section today is that there is a theme that is developing here, and it would be hard in some ways thematically to only pull out a portion of this larger passage. And so again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, Uh, If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone to look up the passage, you can always use our bulletin as well, that the passage is printed there as well. So listen as I read. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their own households, And give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. But if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the picture of effective compassion that we see here in this text. We pray that as we explore what you are saying here by your Spirit, that we would be guided by your Spirit, because we know that in the process of getting the message from you into our hearts, that it it takes the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul as he writes these words, But we also recognize that it takes the illumination of a spirit guiding us as we read, uh, that we can truly understand and see and apply. And so we ask humbly for you to work in our hearts, that our hearts would be ready to receive your word, that our ears could hear, that our eyes could see, that our wills could bend and, and melt under the word of God, that we could see your word is powerful for us today and relevant. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you look at this text, you can you can think of verses 1 and 2 as really an introduction laying out a principle because Paul is going to be dealing with relations within the church, relationships in the church. And so right off the bat, he shows what relationships could look like when there are differences in age. He tells Timothy, who was told a few verses earlier to let no one despise him for his youth, to be able to lead with boldness and to set an example, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And that's not saying that Paul can't confront false teaching within the church. He was told to do that in chapter one, and presumably some of those people could be older than Timothy, but yet he's saying, show respect even to those who are older. It says, respect and encourage younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That there is this sense of mutual love and respect um, that is appropriate for different ages and different relationships within the church. But as this passage continues, in verse 3 to 16, Paul goes into an extended discussion about care for for widows in the church and so you can think of this as a window into a church program you know i know some people that are, are very nervous about one organized religion in general and i i know some churches or even have been at churches in my life where people are very sus- suspicious of church programs but i often find that the alternative to organized religion is not mutual organic care but disorganized religion. And and so what Paul is showing here is is organized religion at its best. Organized religion in a way that is actually serving the weak and the vulnerable and the needy and he's giving detailed instructions for a church ministry for a church program which is of course useful for any church that's seeking to set up ministries to know that it takes thought, it takes planning it takes care it's difficult we can learn lessons as a church plant as we're trying to establish a stable ministry that it takes thought an organization it takes planning but also we see here that paul lays out these instructions for the care of widows in the church because that is an important calling for the church and it's it has to do with the care for the vulnerable We're told in the book of James chapter 1 verse 27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And in the Old Testament, we see many commands that would guard widows, guard the vulnerable in society. We're told in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 that We should bring justice to the fatherless and to plead the widow's cause. And that has to do with the the place of widows in ancient society, that in a predominantly male-dominated society, uh, in a society that was far more chauvinistic, even in a negative sense in our society, that, that women were often overlooked, that they didn't have means of support and care when they did not have a husband, when they were widowed. And of course, we see analogies for that today as well, that somebody who's widowed can be left alone, can face difficulty. There can be the struggles of single mothers who have experienced abandonment and need care. And so we see the need to care for the vulnerable, the command in scripture to care for the vulnerable. But then we also know that caring for people, showing effective compassion is difficult. Because you could fall into one danger of failing to see the need and failing to care for the person who is in need. But then at the same time, as we care for people in need, we always run the risk of enabling people who don't actually need help or expending resources for people who don't actually need care and support. And that can drain the resources of a ministry or a small church or any organization in society. And so how do we do both? How do we care for the weak and the vulnerable but actually identify who is weak and who is needy and who actually needs the support of the church? It's very difficult and hard to see. Now there's a award that a, an organization um, called World News Group gives out and it it's called the Award for Effective Compassion and they have a There's a podcast that they do as part of, goes along with the world and everything in it, their daily news podcast, but it's called Effective Compassion. And what they do is they highlight ministries throughout the country that that meet their criteria of effective compassion. And some of that is is flowing out of the the work of one of their, their chief editor, Marvin Alasky, who has written a book actually about the history of compassion for the poor when it's done well, when it's done poorly. And it's very interesting to hear about the ministries and what does effective compassion look like? As I think about that, I think that, that if they had the award for effective compassion in the first century, and if Timothy actually succeeded in implementing this widow care program that we see laid out in these verses, that I think they would be on the list of ministries that would be highlighted on the podcast for effective compassion, that they would potentially win the award for effective compassion. And, And so what this passage does is it teaches us then what effective compassion looks like in the local church, but also in our lives as individuals. And so we're asking the question, what does effective compassion look like? we see three answers here in the text. So the first answer to this, what does effective compassion looks like, is first, effective compassion empowers families to serve, that it empowers families to serve. So look at verse 3 there in your Bible, verse 3. Paul says to honor widows, So far, so good. But then he says to honor widows who are truly widows. And you say, well, Paul, what do you mean by truly widows? I think we can define what a widow is according to scripture. But then Paul unpacks a little bit more down in verse 5 what he means. That he says, she who is truly a widow left all alone. That for Paul, his definition of the true widow needing the care and the support of the church, the financial support, all widows would need the care and support of the church, but he's seeing the the financial support of the church, that it's for the widow who is left all alone. And of course that goes along with verse four, where Paul says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, we'll, we'll come back to verse 4 and talk about some of the application of this verse. But for now, notice that Paul wants the church to respect what Abraham Kuyper, the great theologians, called sphere sovereignty. And you say, well, what is sphere sovereignty? And sphere sovereignty is the idea that God, in his wisdom, has set up different spheres of society uh, that have... A degree of sovereignty in that one sphere of society shouldn't invade the responsibility of the others as far as is possible. So there's the family, there's the church, we can think of businesses, nonprofits, there's the state, the government, and so each of those spheres of society have a God-given responsibility that they are called to fulfill. And so when you think about needs, when you think about the encroaching danger of poverty, When you think of the position of widows in the first century, what Paul is saying is that the the first line of defense against poverty, the first line of defense against the widow being left all alone is the family. And so he's saying for the church, do not invade the sphere sovereignty of the family if you are able that, that if the, the widow has family members or children or grandchildren that can provide care, they should do it first, the first line of defense. And of course, sometimes that support is not there. Maybe there's not an intact family. Maybe there's no family at all. And that's saying the church then steps in as the second line of defense to provide care. And if the church is unable to do that, then perhaps a nonprofit steps in and if no nonprofit is available to step in perhaps the government steps in but you think of how in our society so often we've we've flipped that paradigm of care upside down that we think of the government's somewhat failed war on poverty over the last few decades and how often it, with very good intentions that the state has inadvertently or maybe even intentionally sometimes invaded the sovereignty of support for people that should have been the first line of defense, taking away from the church or taking away from the the family or taking away from nonprofits and caring for those in need. So again, it's not saying that the government has no role in caring for the vulnerable, but it's saying that it's not the first line. And I was mentioning Marvin Alasky and and his work on effective compassion, and he quotes a woman named Mary Richmond of the Baltimore City Charity, and this is what she wrote back in 1897. She said, relief given without reference to friends and neighbors, or we could say in family, is accompanied by moral loss. Poor neighbors are doomed to grow poorer whenever natural ties of neighborliness are weakened by well-meant but unintelligent interference. I think that that's right, that, that we can have well meant but unintentional interference. And that's what Paul is saying that, that the church shouldn't be guilty of well meant but unintentional interference into the family. And so, reflecting on this, Marvin Alasky writes he says, today, before developing a foundation project or contributing to a private charity, we should ask does it work through families, neighbors, and religious and community organizations, or does it supersede them? So we say, what does effective compassion look like? Well, we see that, according to Paul, that it starts with the family, the responsibility of the family. And it's an intense responsibility, according to verse eight. Look there in your Bible. Paul says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul could not have stated this warning more sharply, more severely, that, that care for our family members isn't just a good idea, it's not a, a bonus moral duty, but it's saying that if, in terms of Christian piety, In terms of living out our faith, the very starting place for that is care for our family. And he's saying that to fail to care for your family is tantamount to a denial of the faith. That somebody who does not care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And often this verse is applied to fathers. We, We live in a time where there is a epidemic of fathers abandoning the responsibility of their children or their wives. Uh, and so we see that, that this would speak to that situation, say that, that those who do not provide for their household are worse than an unbeliever. They need to care for their family. And I think that it encompasses that application. But notice that, that the context isn't so much the responsibility of fathers to care for their children or their wife, though it would include that. But the, the context is actually the responsibility of children to care for their parents or for grandchildren to care for their grandparents. Because look again back at verse 4. Paul said, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, um, and the, in, in Greek the word is slightly more vague, it could be descendants, uh, has children or descendants, uh, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. And to make some return to their parents, or again in Greek it's slightly more vague, it's to their ancestors, to their living ancestor to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so Paul is saying that that children have a debt of gratitude to their parents, that they are indebted to their parents, which is an interesting way of Thinking about it, we we might use that language, but it's interesting that the Bible directly uses that language. He says that the children need to make some return to their parents. Are they able to fully repay the debt to their parents? No. But this logic makes sense. I mean, you think about who changed your diapers when you were young. And and you know that, that many people, when their parents age, have to give the same care or Who lost countless hours of sleep when you were a baby? And again, you might have to lose sleep for an aging parent. And who sacrificed for you in multiple ways? Who sacrificed financially so you could have opportunities who provided for your needs? And so the children are told to repay their parents to make some return. And you can think of examples, I mean, perhaps some of you were in the position of caring for aging parents or aging family members, and I think of recently my mother-in-law who cared for Grace's grandmother. Uh, she passed away not too long ago uh, of dementia, but my, my mother-in-law, just a wonderful godly woman, sacrificed so much time, so much energy, so much sleep to care for her mother, and, and in a really diff- difficult way with her mother facing uh, dementia. And I, when I look, read what Paul is saying here, I see encouragement for somebody like my mother in law in providing that care. Because it's saying that, that she's, she's not doing something that, that's just a bonus moral duty. That so often in our society, that, that kind of care for parents is seen as, wow, you're doing that, I can't believe you're doing that. Because even though there's a place for nursing home care, that what our society has so often done is, Shipped people out of sight, out of mind, so that parents never see their children or their grand- grandchildren, so they don't receive any kind of care. He's saying that that is not right, that, the, that children and grandchildren need to care for their parents. And he says that this is pleasing on the side of God. And so, maybe for some of you, if you find yourself in the position of caring for an aging friend or an aging, <laughs> aging family member, an aging parent, you can take comfort from what Paul's saying. He says that, that this is pleasing in the sight of God, that this care for parents is fulfilling a, a duty before God to honor your father and your mother, that it's, that it's a moral duty that's so intense that if you failed to do it, that you would have denied the faith and it would be worse than an unbeliever. But I also think for those who are younger who have parents who are still in good health, that we need to remember what Paul says here. We need to take the the warning very seriously and even prepare in our thinking, asking God to give us grace to respond, to care for our parents well, to care for our grandparents well, to not ignore them, to not sideline them, but to take on this responsibility, to take on the responsibility of effective compassion in the family, which is really the starting place for this care. So again, remember our question, we said what does effective compassion look like? And we said that effective compassion empowers families. It starts with the family as the first line of defense. But then second, as we look at our text today, we can see that that effective compassion also empowers the vulnerable to serve. It empowers the vulnerable to use their gifts and their abilities. So look in your Bible at verse nine. Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, when I first read these verses, I, I struggled a bit because it seemed it, it seemed to me on the surface at first that Paul was saying that the church should actually not provide care. For, for widows unless they meet these moral qualifications. Or it seems that Paul is saying that that the church shouldn't care for a widow if they're younger than age 60. And you think about in, in the first century before the advance of, of modern medicine, I mean, probably 60 at that time would be akin to 80 today. And, and so you say, well, what is Paul getting at? And I, and I don't think what he intends to teach here is that the church never provides care for younger widows or for single mothers or because the church is also called to care for sinners, for prostitutes, for that there's not a, a moral qualification that the church uses necessarily for serving the poor, that we have a broad duty to care for the vulnerable. And so you say, well, what is Paul saying? And this is where I was helped by Many of the, the commentaries on this passage that what it seems that Paul is talking about when he talks about being enrolled or put on a list is something you could say a level above the general care of widows within the church. That what it seems is that some widows were identified as needing permanent care, that these were widows that needed the long term support of the church, the widows who didn't have family support who would be left completely alone but then it's not simply that the church was to give them a handout or was just to support them asking nothing in return but in a sense these widows were being placed on the the payroll of the church that these women were being asked to serve to use their gifts for the building up of the body of Christ so in his commentary Donald Guthrie says, it seems uh, preferable to suppose that special duties in the church were were reserved for some of the older widows receiving receiving aid, and that some official recognition of this fact was given. Or a Bible encyclopedia says this, by the time of the pastoral epistles were written, an official order of widows had been established which was supported by the church and possibly assigned a particular ministry in the church. Thus, in the New Testament church, the widows—sorry, uh, thus, sorry—thus, in the New Testament church, the widow was cared for and placed in a position of responsibility. Then, one more quote here. This is from John Calvin in his commentary. He says that some widows were received on the condition that the church should relieve their poverty, and that, on their part, they should be employed in ministering to the poor as far as the state of their health allowed. Thus, there was a mutual obligation between them and the church. So you see what what this is drawing out, that it's very likely that these older widows uh, weren't simply given money and sent away or given money and relegated to a secondary position within the church. But it's saying that these widows within the church were provided financial support, but then it was also recognized that they have that they had wisdom, they had gifts, they had ways to serve, that they were called to be building up the body of, of Christ. And so they were to essentially be using those gifts under the the supervision of the church to provide care. And that's why we see this moral qualification that that for for these older widows who were were receiving long-term support, that they shouldn't be enrolled into this position of honor within the church unless they meet the moral qualification. And look look at the moral qualifications that Paul outlines in our text. It says that they, they needed to be at least 60 years old. Uh, as we said, that, that was pretty old at that time. Uh, that, that just considering lifespans now versus th- then. Um, but it, w- it was interesting. A commentary pointed out that Plato in his ideal republic said that priests shouldn't be allowed to serve unless they were over the age of 60. Uh, that, that 60 was seen as this, this age of moving into to old age. Again, that was back then. I'm not saying now. Uh, um, but but, he's, but, he's, but there is a, a, an age limit for the care here of the widows. So that was the first thing. But then second, he said that they needed to be the wife of one husband. And of course, that qualification mirrors the qualification for elders, for offers spares back in chapter 3, where it says that an elder in the church needed to be the, the husband of one wife. But here, the, the respected elder widow within the church needs to be the wife of one husband, one who is known for fidelity in marriage within her life. But then finally, Paul goes on and says that, that the widows who serve within this role in the church should have a, a track record. He says, brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, the afflicted, devoted themselves to every good work. So again, Paul's not saying that they would necessarily have done all of those, but he's giving this picture of, of these women who could be looked to as examples of service within the church. So as you think about this, and as we're drawing out implications for today, we think what does effective compassion look like? What lessons can we as the church or as individuals learn from this passage? And I think we we learned something about the the place of work and service among people. That sometimes we assume that people who need financial support or financial care have nothing to offer to the community, or often they're treated as if they have nothing to offer to the community. But in his work on effective compassion, Marvin Alasky uh, uses these pretty interesting examples from history of ministries uh, back in the late 1800s, early 20th century that would care for the homeless, but would ask them to split wood for the community or, or would ask widows to use their gifts in sewing or to help care for children if it was appropriate. And I think that, that what we see is that that actually shows the value of people. It gives them dignity. It's humanizing. It's respecting to the gifts and talents that people have. And I think that we can learn a lot from that as a society, that, that we, we should see each and every member of the community as valuable and to respect people who have experience, who have age, and to assume that that, that each and every person throughout their life has ways of serving and building up the body of Christ. Maybe they're not the one who's working the high-paying nine-to-five job to be able to tithe to the church. Maybe they're receiving financial support from the church on a more long-term basis, but that doesn't mean that they're not serving, that they're not praying, that they're not using their gifts. That is what Paul is highlighting in his passage today. And I think that this humanizing effect of work, thinking of the goodness of work and creation, is helpful for the church as we think about the way we care for people, but it's helpful, I think, for individuals as well. And maybe some of you have cared for people in your life in this way. That some, There's a place at times to simply give money to somebody in need. But then also there can be a place to ask someone to do a job. Can you mow my lawn? Can you weed my garden? Could you help out with my children? Can you serve in some way? And that by doing that, you're not trying to insult the person, and say that they simply need to work to receive care, but you're actually trying to respect them and humanize them and honor them and say that their efforts efforts are valuable, that we respect their efforts, that they can still contribute to society, to the church, to the world. And I think that this is helpful for all of us as we think about aging, that sometimes we're given the picture in our current society that you, you work and then you retire and then you're done working. But what we see in scripture is that we always have a calling from God and we always have a vocation from God, but that may change depending on our ability. Perhaps you're unable to work a nine to five job, but there still may be ways of serving the poor or devoting yourself to prayer. You can think of Anna in the book of Luke chapter one who who was at the temple day and night praying and fasting, was a a woman of prayer, was able to contribute to others through her prayers or through service or through all kinds of different means. And so that's the picture that we should have as we enter old age is not saying, all right, I'm done, I'm retiring, I'm moving on. But at this given stage of my life, what does fruitful service look like? What does fruitful service look like when you have young children or when you have children out of the home or when you're... Above 60 or above 80 or above 90, what does service look like? That effective compassion empowers people to serve because that gives dignity and and purpose to people created in the image of God. So finally, we were asking the question, what does effective compassion look like? And here's the, the third and final answer to that question. That effective compassion doesn't, enable bad behavior and this it really goes hand in hand with the the dignity of work that we were talking about but this is where paul camps out for the rest of our passage verse 11 to 15. so look there in your bible he says but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from christ they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." And so again, Paul isn't saying here that these that the church should refuse to care for younger widows if they are in true need, if they have no family support. But what he is saying is that it, when it comes to long-term permanent support of the church, when it comes to entering the, the what we could call the payroll of the church, to this role, special role of the older widows within the church, he's saying refuse younger widows, refuse to enroll them, don't put them into that category of the leading widows of the church. And then he explains the reason for that, and it's it's that they have other means of support. They may not have the, the family support, but Paul is encouraging these widows to, in a sense, take personal responsibility for their lives and if possible, in many circumstances, to seek to be remarried or ready to raise children, to manage their household. Of course, Paul elsewhere lays out the legitimate role of lifelong singleness as a calling. That's not what he's dealing with here. But he's saying that, that if somebody is in the payroll of the church, if they have permanent support, but they don't have the spiritual maturity for this yet, that it could actually lead to gossip. It could lead down an unhelpful path, and so he's saying yes, these women can find calling in other places. I think that as we're again drawing out these lessons about the nature of effective compassion, that we learn this important lesson here about what it looks like. Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary on this says, charity misplaced is a great hindrance to true charity. There should be prudence in the choice of the objects of charity that it may not be thrown away upon those who are not properly so that there there may be more for those who are real objects of charity. So you see what he's saying that 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 you want to direct the resources of the church where they are truly needed. And again Marvin Olasky quoting early examples of charity, uh, he quotes the New Orleans charity organization in 1899 and they said intelligent giving and intelligent withholding are alike true charity that intelligent giving and intelligent withholding are alike true charity and i think that's helpful for us because yes we see in scripture the the call the call for the church to give to those who beg to to give freely to to even be willing to be taken advantage of. You could think of the Good Samaritan. He was willing to be taken advantage of, and, and that the church needs to be free and open and caring for people, to, and sometimes to do that in a risky way or to risk being taken advantage of, and we see that in the example of Christ. But then there are other times where it is can be wise to withhold care and support. The withholding of charity is also true charity, and that's what Paul's saying here, That that The goal of the church should see the the widows in the best position where they could find themselves. And he's saying that that for some of the widows, if they were enrolled into permanent care in the payroll of the church, that it wouldn't be good for them long-term. And that what the church should seek is for people to be in the ideal situation for where they are. And so again, we, we learn these important lessons and we can think about the application for this both as a church and as individuals. But then as we just, wrap up today, we we bring it around to Jesus Christ. This is a, a passage where there, there's it doesn't directly lay out the gospel within these verses. Paul has been laying that out earlier in the, the letter. But we, we think of what does true compassion look like? What does effective compassion look like? And we see that ultimately in Jesus Christ as the, the ultimate Example of effective compassion. I, I was talking about an award, uh, the Hope Award for Effective Compassion, that ultimately that award wouldn't go to any church or any nonprofit or any ministry, but the ultimate Hope Award for Effective Compassion goes to Jesus Christ alone. Because he enters the world being willing to be taken advantage of, and he was taken advantage of. All the way to the point of death on the cross, giving himself as a sacrifice for his people. And we likewise should lay down our lives for others. That's the pattern that we see in scripture, that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another. But then we also see Jesus as one who didn't enter simply to enable us to to live life however we want. That he died on the cross to save us from our sins, but... But to actually bring us into new life, to bring us from death to life, to, to call us to himself, to call us to our duty of serving our family and our friends and our, our church, that, that we are called to, to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ, that, that Jesus saves us and renews us and transforms us. And so his compassion was, was, wasn't just enabling bad behavior, but it was this transformative compassion. That each and every one of us can experience today as we repent and trust in Him alone for salvation. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your effective compassion that you have displayed for us in Christ. And Lord, we marvel at the, the level of detail that we see in Scripture. And we thank you for the, the organization that you lay out here for. The early church and for their widow care program. And so, Father, as we think about our own context, we think about Hope Church, we pray that we can learn the lessons we need to learn from this text. We pray that we can empower people to serve at all different stages of their life, that that we would not relegate certain people um, to, to act like they, they can't contribute, but that we can see the, the contribution of people at each stage of their life, and uh, the, the calling to serve and to use our gifts that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, we pray that you would use this to build us up in the, in the image of Christ, that you would build up the body of Christ as each member of the body is functioning. But Lord, we also want to be wise in the way that we do effective compassion. You say here in this passage that that if somebody has the ability to receive care elsewhere, let the church not be burdened. And so we pray that as a church, we can be a church that supports families, that encourages families to step up, to take the responsibility to care for their loved ones. But then also, Father, I pray that we can be ready with the the net of care, the net of the church to take those who, who don't have another place to turn, And that you would give us wisdom that we would be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we provide that care. That it wouldn't be good intentions that enable bad behavior, but it could be intentions flowing out of the relationship with Jesus that that leads to the building up of individuals, whether that's providing long-term support and care or helping encourage them to take responsibility in their lives as individuals. But Lord, we pray that we could be faithful in this care for the vulnerable, this deep calling of the church. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name.